Hello and welcome back to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. In this week's episode, recorded this Tuesday the 15th of September 2015, we're joined by Tim Flannery, John Grimes and Catherine Tay-White for a discussion about the challenges and opportunities around the corner on the issue of climate change. Here's our host, broadcaster and anthropologist Sally Warhaft, to introduce Atmosphere of Hope. Hope. And uh, we've, uh, of course, borrowed the title from Tim Flannery's uh, latest book, Um, And it's a great pleasure to have our three guests on stage to talk about climate change and um, and, uh, and some, well, positive aspects, uh, as well as perhaps some that uh, are not uh, so great. Tim, of course, is an acclaimed author uh, of books including The Future Eaters, The Weather Makers, and this latest book, Atmosphere of Hope. Uh, the search for solutions in the climate. Tim founded and heads the Australian Climate Council, which was abolished by the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. (laughs) Oh, I got a tingle up my spine. (laughs) Has he actually resigned? Did he? Yeah, okay. Catherine Tay-White is the Managing Director and Founder of FutureEye, uh, which is a strategy and engagement firm. And John Grimes is the Chief Executive of the Australian Solar Council and the Energy Storage Council. So give them a big sunny welcome. This time, or late last week, I thought that this conversation uh, would be starting in in what I found the most depressing moment regarding uh, this current government and climate change, which was that absolutely vulgar joke uh, by Peter Dutton and the bizarre laughter of our former Prime Minister about the waves lapping at the door. Um, of course, the climate of, of politics around this issue has now changed. Perhaps the expectations m- not a- are greater th- than what might happen. But, Tim, I want to start by you giving us your reaction to Malcolm Turnbull, uh, somebody who does actually believe in climate change uh, in office now. Well, I, you know, having watched um, um, uh, Malcolm's uh, press interview last night, you'd have to say that there, there's un, very unlikely to be any change in terms of climate policy, at least until election time. And I, I, re- I think that the new Prime Minister faces a really difficult problem which has a potential to bring him undone unless he can find a solution to it. And that is that his party have a very different view of the climate problem and what needs to be done to what the general public think is the case. And so you can't be friends of both. You actually have to somehow uh, bring that together or or make a choice. And I think it's going to be a very difficult issue. It it felt to me last night that as the single issue that he actually mentioned wouldn't change, that 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 was the deal. Uh, And... uh, is that frustrating for you? Is it, uh, or you you expected it 
Oh, well, you know, how many prime ministers have we seen come and go with this sort of stuff going on? I think you know, what, what I'm about and what the Climate Council really is about is building public understanding of the issue so that the support is there for sensible, cost-effective policy. And that's what we all want to see. Um, well, and we'll get it one day. We, we will. And, um, you know, we, people are doing so much themselves. And can I just give you one example so that I think it's so important? Earlier in the year, the International Energy Agency made the announcement that, or preliminary announcement, that um, economic growth had decoupled from emissions from the burning of fossil fuels at the global level. I mean, that is hugely important. And that wasn't all driven by government policy. I mean, it was, you know, energy efficiency had a huge role to play with that, and, and that was all to do with people changing light globes in their houses and putting solar panels on their roof and, you know, insulating their houses and agitating for a bike lane in their city. I mean, you know, so after 10 years of individual effort that all of us have felt a bit despairing about, I think, um, you know, we've finally got to the point where we've seen that decoupling, and that is a historic moment that's happened many, many years in advance of what I thought it might. And it is down to individuals as much as government policy. So I think us as a community is just as important as government policy with these sort of things. It'd, it'd be lovely to live in a world where government policy was helping you, but we can't despair because it isn't. We have to just get on with the job. Catherine, does that ring true for you? Well, I think the... I'd like to go back to the point that Tim made about can we actually have a situation where um, the community is engaged and uh, the party is engaged. And you'd note in terms of what um, Malcolm Turnbull talked about last night, he talked a lot about the importance of engaging and treating the Australian public intelligently. Um, and I think that was his way of balancing up uh, the very issue that Tim is referring to, which is, uh, on the one hand, we have a great maturing of expectations in the lead-up to Paris. Uh, there is more and more momentum around people making pledges, major corporations making pledges that will drive the reduction in carbon in our economy. Um, so far, we're up to uh, 3.6 degrees. Now, clearly, that's way higher than we are comfortable with, um, but that's what we've got so far locked in. And what we're after is to get to pledges that get to two degrees. Um, and the idea of Paris and the momentum and the curve of maturity as we would see it is that it's growing exponentially and the acceleration is massive and it will just get greater and greater. So every day we are tracking commitments being made by banks, insurance agencies, all sorts of different organisations looking at ways of trying to understand what are the carbon risks, how can we mitigate them, how can we be ahead of the curve. And in that competition to be ahead of the curve, you're actually getting a totally different global dynamic than you've had before. Uh, and that's an important thing to think about in terms of Australia. Where do we want to be positioned as a country? Uh, and where are we at the moment? We've been laggard under Tony Abbott, where he was a climate denier uh, for many years until recently, uh, where he acknowledged that there was an anthropogenic effect. Um, he, he certainly didn't want to see anything really done about it, and that sort of had a held people back. Now, um, even if... Um, the new Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, doesn't change Liberal policy. I think you're going to see um, a change in sentiment in business. John, you've just got back from Canning, uh, where you've been engaged in the, in the, the by-election uh, lead-up. Tell us about what you've been doing there and, and 
what the feeling is for, for your work with solar at that local level of a, of a campaign like Canning? Yeah, absolutely. I think the lesson for me is that when it comes to our political leaders, nothing's inevitable. You know, nothing's locked in. We actually really do have the power as a community to shape the decisions that our politicians take. And I think when we start to feel a bit helpless or a bit disengaged, I think that's when we lose. So I actually think there's a really important process to put pressure on our political leaders to start taking us in the right direction. So we watched as this played out, the new government came into office and uh, we're a peak body, an industry peak body, so we're not a usual suspect. You wouldn't usually see us running a pointed political campaign. But it was clear that that's what we had to do because if we didn't, then our interest would be completely rolled over. So we actually launched during the WA Senate by-election the Save Solar campaign. Industry has stumped out up about a million dollars to put into this campaign so far, uh, and it's been hugely successful. So in Western Australia, we got Scott, Scott Ludlam back in the Senate. But we also got Dio Wang from the Palmer United Party. And uh, we support any party that supports good solar policy. And guess what? Palmer signed up. And when it came to the test, on top of the block, which was Labor and the Greens, that was fundamental. But we had to have those Senate cross-Senate votes to stop the abolition of ARENA, to stop the abolition of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And so those votes were critical. So actually, it, you know, inserting ourselves in that way important. We've now had seven marginal seats save solar community forums, where we get people in the community to talk about their experience with solar. Eden Monero, Petrie, Deacon, Hindmarsh, Herbert, uh, and now Canning and others. Uh, and, and the message's been the same everywhere we go. Everybody's just so angry that this government has become so anti-renewables, that they have this fixation with wind power, that they want to stop people slashing their power bills by installing solar. It is just Luddite stuff. And the coalition of interests that we bring together is really unusual. It's tradies, sparkies, plumbers, small business owners. It's large renewable energy investors. It's self-funded retirees who, who understand solar is cost of living insurance for them. Uh, it's people from the Greens. It's people from community groups. It's trade union representatives. It's industry representatives. So we've got to cut right across the political spectrum that I don't think I've not seen on any other issue. And so I think this is really powerful. So to your question about canning, we saw in Canning exactly what we've seen everywhere else we go around the country. The people are engaged on this issue and they feel strongly about it. We did some polling. It showed that of undecided voters, 25% um, of them put solar policy as their number one issue in the campaign. So we have been effective in raising the, uh, the, you know, the awareness of the issue. And I think collectively, we can be potent, we can shift votes, and we can hold all political parties to account. It's fascinating, and uh, I feel like I'm going to levitate or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tim, I, I, um, I'd hate to bring it down, right? But um, I, I want to uh, go back ten years ago. Uh, you wrote uh, the Weathermakers. Uh, give us a brief a brief sort of uh, evaluation of, of where 
where we've come in, in that decade. Sure, Sally. But before that, I just want to say more strength to your arms. It was amazing, wasn't it? Just yeah, fantastic. it was really and great. That's what yeah. we need, someone who's got the guts yeah. to get in there and manage to spend time in that Parliament House without going insane. No, I just <laughs> hand it to you, totally. <laughs> You're a hero. Um, but look, in terms of what's happened for the last decade, we have been tracking the worst case emission scenario right, that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change considered was possible. So we've been right up there at one end of the curve, the worst case. And uh, last year we uh, emitted 40 gigatons of carbon dioxide as a species. That's an unimaginably large amount. Now, just to explain how big it is, if you wanted to take four gigatons of carbon dioxide out of the air and you wanted to do it through tree planting, for example, you'd need to plant the whole continent of Australia in trees. Right? So, um, and you need to do it at a New York state-sized hunk every year for 50 years and keep all those trees growing. At the end of that time, um, you would have dragged out you know, four gigatons of CO2 um, you know, per, per annum on average. But you'd also heat the planet because you're taking a really bright surface that's putting sunlight back into space through reflecting it. Uh, and replacing with a dark canopy, which just creates more heat. So, you know, when you're dealing with gigatons of CO2, they are numbers of planetary significance. So it's huge. So we are now, uh, we've, the Earth has warmed by just under one degree um, Celsius. We're committed to another half a degree. So we're committed to about one and a half degrees Celsius. We're on a trajectory of three point something, you know, up there uh, on average. So um, we hope Paris will change that, but you know, this, the IEA figures I quoted uh, just a minute ago were the first glimmerings that I've seen that we're starting now to decouple and that emissions are not going to keep rising, we hope, because the 2014 figures for emissions was the same as the 2013 figures. So it looks like there's a bit of a plateau. If they start going down, um, we'll have some breathing space. We're still committed, in my view, to breach the two-degree barrier. That, that's pretty much inevitable. We just can't cut emissions fast enough, no matter what we do, uh, to avoid that. Uh, and that has implications, of course, for our future, and that's why I wrote the book. Well, the book centres around uh, a, a, an idea that you call the third way. Yeah. Uh, you explain it. You'll do it far better than I could. Sure. Well, look, because of what I just explained, the fact that we are committed to more than two degrees of warming, um, that has several implications. The first is that we have to stamp down on emissions from fossil fuel burning as hard and as fast as we can. Most people agree on that. <laughs> Most sensible people have looked at the data. Second uh, point that comes out of that is that climate change is really a lived experience for a lot of people now. We're seeing the impacts right now. Um, and people, some people and some governments are considering what I'd call a second way. So um, seeing that we're not going to avoid two degrees and that they can be severely damaged by that warming, they're looking at geoengineering proposals. So ideas like putting sulphur into the stratosphere to cool the planet. They're, they're cheap, um, they're not regulated by international treaty and they're immediately effective. They're also disastrous because they'll allow the warming, the um, CO2 build-up to go on um, masked really under a band-aid. Uh, and if they're stopped quickly, the climate system could react very severely. So, so that's the second way that we can see building in the background, you know, or Russia or China doing something like that. The third way that the book is really devoted to is uh, the possibility that we can develop a whole series of approaches which will allow us to take carbon dioxide at scale out of the atmosphere. 
And this is a new idea. I had to actually coin a term, really, for this basket of technologies, these third-way technologies. Um, none of them are in inevitable. We're not, we're not certain that any of them are going to be developed, but we can see the need for them. We know what the problem's going to be in 2050. It's going to be getting some of the gas out of the air. And it turns out there are a number of options that are really interesting from that perspective. Um, you know, one of the, there's a whole series of technologies you might want to call biological. They're all driven by the sun, capture mechanisms, plants, reforestation is one of those, obviously, you know, limited in a scale. But when you turn to seaweed farming, um, very, very speculative, but potentially you can do it on a massive scale. If you planted 9% of the world's ocean in seaweed farms, you would capture all of the CO2 we're currently putting up in the air in any one year. Now, there's so many, there's a whole lot of issues around that. You know, where do you put all that CO2? <laughs> what are you going to do with all that seaweed? Um, you know, kind of the, the questions. And also, 9% of the world's oceans, it's not a small area. It's an area about nine, uh, four and a half times the size of Australia, which is quite significant, right? But so there's a whole series of technologies there. On the, on the other side of the ledger, that what's called the chemical technologies, they include things like carbon negative concrete making and you know at the moment cement making emits about seven gigatons of co2 per year globally you know imagine if we could have carbon negative concrete replacing that where you don't create emissions as you make the concrete and as the concrete cures and stands over years it absorbs co2 into its structure it's a revolutionary breakthrough that stuff already exists you know it's just that it's not because it doesn't have a long track record there's a, sl a slowness in taking it up government policy can really deal with that and start mandating the use of that sort of concrete in low-risk areas. Um, the use of serpentinite rocks is another one. You know, we're really rich in serpentinite rocks here in Australia. There's um, a whole lot of approaches using this rock, which, as it degrades, it absorbs CO2. There's a Dutch company, for example, wanting to put it in roof paint. They're already, already doing that at some scale. There's other groups who want to use it as a soil amendment. Other people think we could seed beaches with it and, and start absorbing CO2. Now, it takes some CO2 at the moment, fossil fuels, um, to crush rock. But, you know, as the grid greens up, it, maybe we can do that with less impact and at scale. So, you know, five or six gigatons of serpentinite can draw out of the atmosphere, you know, three or four uh, gigatons of CO2. So the possibilities are there. And, you know, they go on and on. I mean, God, every day brings a new development in this area. I remember uh, two weeks ago there was an announcement made that carbon fibres, which are really important for aircraft manufacture at the moment, can be made directly from atmospheric CO2 now. Big breakthrough has occurred. And they can make those fibres at one-tenth the conventional manufacturing cost. It's incredible. So, you know, we're never going to draw a gigaton of CO2 out of the atmosphere making aircraft hulls, but it's one additional option. Um, another one was people found a use for coffee grounds, old coffee grounds, a group of Korean researchers have found a way to activate those coffee grounds to capture atmospheric methane. It's incredible. I mean, it's a greenhouse gas 60 times more potent than CO2. Can we all be drinking 20 cups of coffee a day, you know, to save the planet? Probably <laughs> doing it at scale. But, but the, the fact is that these things are happening and we need conceptually to make the leap to say, this is our future. This is the big new tech boom. We know we're going to need some of these technologies. We don't know which ones are going to win, but my God, we better start investing now if we want them to be mature in 10, 20, 30 years' time. One of the things um, in, in the book, reading about these bigger ideas, the seaweed and the cement and so on, that require real backing and real science and money and so on, and government support, they mimic in a larger way very local 
things that you describe too. So, so really charming, really um, thoughtful, intelligent responses to very local problems. So in Bangladesh, um, a, a village that was always flooded in the monsoon and somebody built what, a dozen floating libraries of uh, with schools and internet and books. Yeah, just uh, floating platforms. So simple. Just so, so simple adapting uh, to the environment. Another, another place, they're painting the top of the mountains white to absorb... I mean, just really moving. Um, John, tell us what you see in terms of innovation, big and small, in solar. Yeah, okay. Well, um, you know, solar innovation is obviously happening rapidly around the world. But I've come back from a a couple of weeks in China where I visited the largest battery factories in the the world. You know, watched at the end of the production line as the battery packs for the all-electric BMW cars came off the end of the run one every four minutes. Uh, And uh, the thing that, that really struck me on that trip was this. We've got the solar technology and the wind technology, and they are cheaper than conventional grid electricity today. We've got the energy storage technology coming on really quickly and becoming very economic. Uh, but there's, there was, there's a missing piece which I, was, which I hadn't considered, and that is the energy management system. That is a computer that basically brings everything together and runs your house to deliver you the best services. So it's a little computer that's embedded in your house that talks to your air conditioner, that talks to your electric vehicle, that talks to your battery. So you can program it and say, I want the cheapest electricity, please. Mm. Or you can program it and say, I want the electricity with the least emissions, please. And it takes away the big component that's missing today, and that is the reliance that we have on personal you know, changes in your lifestyle. So you actually have to go and do something to get the benefit. The computer will do it for you, which is absolutely fantastic. So the internet of things, sensors in your refrigerators and your appliances, um, big data, um, so that we're not, you know, it's a Friday, right? What's going to happen in two days' time on a Sunday? Well, uh, a Sunday, I might need some extra power because we've got a party on or something, right? So the system knows that. So it might hold back some energy today. It also forecasts and says, what's the solar radiation looking like on Sunday? And how does that figure in? Do I need to... And we have plenty available or not so much? This is going to be the world of big data. It's going to be the world of integrated energy solutions, and it's happening really quickly, this... this this coming together of information, technology and energy. And I think it's going to be profound because it's going to solve a lot of the problems that today we, we, we rely on people to solve and we take that away. So I think it'll be transformational. Do you mean a really smart meter? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I absolutely do. Absolutely. Yeah. Catherine, this kind of innovation that John's talking about, that's, it's at the heart of it, isn't it? Where, where uh, is Australia, I suppose, in relation to the rest of the world with this kind of innovation and thinking? I think the spectrum um, that we see is that there are some great, exciting, small, small start-up type tech companies, and there are also some massive... Um, technology companies that are interested in um, innovation, but what we haven't seen is a take-up of the average um, small to medium enterprise, uh, the average listed company. They haven't really grabbed hold of sustainability and said, 
can we think about this in innovation terms to do the integrated strategy that um, John's talking about? Uh, what we're seeing is, you know, compliance um, reporting, um, uh, sort of really what we would call the sort of evidence that people are doing shareholder primacy type activities. So where they're thinking about efficiency, they're thinking about reporting, and they're thinking about compliance, which is nowhere near enough in our books. You know, so the next era had been materiality. What did stakeholders think were critical and what were commercially important risks to, to manage? And there are some companies in Australia that are uh, addressing that, but there are um, just way too few going to that next horizon, which is the horizon you're talking about, integrated sustainability, where you're thinking, what are the strategic opportunities for my business, for my sector, if I reimagine the way we would do, do our business so it was fundamentally sustainable, not just in terms of energy, which, you know, we've spent time talking about energy and decarbonisation, and that's vital, but what about in terms of poverty reduction? What about in terms of... Um, partnering to uh, you know, improve uh, education for women and girls. There's a whole lot of other elements that are part of the UN Sustainable Development Goals that will be ratified at the end of September. And um, it, we, it takes us to actually think about them as a whole and think about our businesses in relation to that um, and to start to reimagine what businesses could be and should be like by 2030. How important was uh, Obama's uh, plan for the climate, for the world, Tim? Well, it's, it's one... Well, hold on. Let's go back to the beginning with this because I think it's really fundamental. I was pretty involved with the Copenhagen Climate Council meetings, uh, Copenhagen meetings. I was head of the Copenhagen Climate Council for three years. Um, and that we saw the UNFCCC process, like the you know the UN process, play out there um, to a, a ba very bad outcome. But what saved the day was President Obama breaking into a meeting, basically uh, between the leaders of India, China, um, Brazil, Mexico, and South and South Africa, and saying to them, "Hey guys, we need to do something here. Here's a one-page proposal that I think we can all live with, which is basically." that we all work out what actions we can take in accordance with the realities of our economy and we come back and make pledges on that basis and, and move forward that way, so bottom-up approach. That is the foundation stone now for the Paris meeting. right? And in addition to that, what Obama has done is worked very closely with the Chinese, very successfully under the radar um, for many months until, you remember, at the um, uh, APEC meeting. He, he came out and they announced the, the new pact, which was just fantastic. So not only the US, but China's been coming along with that. Um, the US has also found a way through that, in, that terrible uh, dilemma that they've got of the Republicans rejecting anything to do with climate change. The bill they crafted uh, to get action really delivers to the states the option of doing it any way that they want or they see fit. So it mandates a target you know, approach, but leaves it to the states. So they don't have to have a carbon price if they don't want. They can use energy efficiency or a renewable energy target or whatever else they want to do you know, to get to the end. So I think it's really, really smart politics. It's been, it's been the fundamental driver now for five or six years in terms of approach. It's, it, I think, will get us off that worst-case scenario trajectory, but it won't get us to two degrees. The momentum is too great. And if we could just have a word, John, about you know, the, the batteries and things. I, I agree with you. There's huge hope in that. But, you know, the biggest... 
manufacturer or the biggest um, electric vehicle manufacturer in China, the BYD, you know, is they made 2,000 cars last year. They'll make 20,000 this year. They might make 200,000 next year. But the fact is that, you know, I think China, one in five people has a car. They're putting 15 million cars a year on the road. So there's a lot of overhang. It's, it's, we, I'd love to be able to stop emissions much sharper, but I can see that there's an inertia in the way the world's working that's going to make that very difficult. Yeah, I, I was surprised when they talked in China. They actually have a, a, a Chinese government policy to subsidise uh, electric vehicles made in China to the tune of 10,000 Australian dollars per vehicle. And so the companies I was talking to, there was one that I visited. On the day that I visited, uh, they, they broke the $1 billion valuation mark. Uh, they, they were founded, they started in 2009. <laughs> Uh, and and they, they were just they they couldn't keep up with the demand, particularly for electric vehicle batteries. Yeah. Uh, and so they've got a plan for something like 20 million by by 2020, yeah. uh, and that subsidy will drive it. Uh, and I was in one city, and I watched as the whole uh, the whole city's bus fleet had been electrified. And so I watched as four city buses pulled into a giant shed. Robots came out, took out the depleted batteries put new batteries into them, and, and, the, and the, the, uh, the, the buses drove out in under four minutes, less time than it would take to fill the, the tank with diesel. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was left behind is this enormous power wall of really big batteries. So it was something that state grid were actually tapping into to help manage demand and load on the grid. And so it was a really, and then I thought, wow, you know, that it's possible. I also have seen taxis. You know, some cities are now electrifying their entire taxi fleet, uh, and, and I'm aware of one taxi that's done something like 700,000 kilometres in the time it's been on the road, mm. uh, and uh, absolutely fine. Mm. And so I, I make a point now when I hop into, a, into a, an electric or hybrid taxi in Australia of asking the driver, how's it going and how many kilometres has it done? And you'd be surprised. There's a lot of taxis in Australia that have done mm. half a million kilometres, sure. right, mm. and they've had virtually no servicing, new tyres, some new brake pads, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, think, I think you're right, it does take time, but the momentum's there and I, and I let's hope, you know, that it can break through. Yeah, sure, I agree with you. I just think that uh, it is, you know, and, and all that's incredibly promising and real. Sorry. You I was just going to say, I mean, th there's two competing thoughts here. One is that does the rate of change as we get more and more middle class people going up to 9.7 billion people in 2050, um, does that drive such a huge market that the opportunity, if you like, uh, also becomes so great that you see a massive resolution of a whole series of issues um, and that's really what the world's betting on. You know, 193 countries, that's what everyone is betting on, saying that's what we're going to ratify in order to try and stimulate that. And um, uh, I, my, my sense of it is and our, our view around thinking about it is that as what you, the efforts that you've put in at the Climate Council and all of those things has matured people's understanding and sophistication around these issues, now uh, the next effort is making the politicians actually set policies up. But also, I think it's critical that our business people and our consumers start to be able to make more sophisticated choices because there are more transparent, honest ways that you can judge whether a business is serious about it or not. Yeah, sure. So all of those things coming together should be able to hopefully turn us into an atmosphere of hope. I, I look, I've got, I've got hope. I just think that, <laughs> that uh, there's inertia in the system. And I, 
Even, look, even if we did cut emissions today, for, so just say we never emit another kilogram of CO2, we're still committed to one and a half degrees of warming. And yes. what that means, you know, the scientists tell us the barrier reef is dead at one and a half degrees. The Kakadu wetlands are flooded. We already know it's 0 0.9 of a degree that the Pine Island Glacier is, 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 is committed to melt away just through its mechanics. That's a metre of sea level rise. Mm. That's at zero point. So I, I, I think we're going to need these third way technologies. We're going to need more tools yeah. in the toolbox than we have yeah. at the moment. You're, you're very the clear that none of these single ideas are, are silver bullets. So, I mean, my sense is that what you, you're hoping and John as well, you expressed this with the, the, the solar, and I'm sure Catherine would, would agree, is, is a, a momentum of innovation, technology and community that will then hopefully be met by policy. Yeah. It's pretty sad, isn't it? In a, in a sense that uh, the, the world has to work that hard uh, for government to to follow and, I mean, not just middle class people either, is it? The, the, the poor people of, of the world um, that are right onto this, mm -hmm. the fishermen in you know, right. India or yeah. where, wherever you want to, wherever you want to look. But I mean, is, is it, 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 can it, can it really be achieved when policy and politics doesn't go with you? You know, let's, let's frame the question a little bit and think we're talking now about like 2050 really. The Paris meeting will kick, you know, the commitment's kicking in 2020, they go out to 2030, but really, you know, by 2050 we've got to be decarbonised, right? That's 35 years away. We think of it in 2015 terms, but to get my mind to be a bit more agile, I did a bit of a thought experiment and said, let's pretend I'm living in 1915 rather than 2015, and I'm trying to imagine 1950 mm. rather than 2050. So there I am in a world of empires on which the sun will never set, which have been around for centuries. Uh, the, the streets are full of horse-drawn carriages. Cavalry charges are going on in the First World War. There's, there's no tanks. There might be a few biplanes, but nothing else. And I'm trying to imagine a world of nuclear weapons, jet aircraft, Half the world living under communism, round you know, round figures. It, it's uh, 35 years away. It's utterly unimaginable, and I think 2050 is utterly unimaginable to us as well. Um, but we do know two things. We know what the problem is, and that's an incredible privilege to know that the problem is going to be the CO2 in the atmosphere. That it, those gigatons are measurable. We know their impact. We know we have to decrease them. The second thing we know is the long development times for many of these technologies. You know, wind and solar have taken more than 30 years to get where they are today. If you go back to the 70s, when they were, you know, very, very, uh, about the same stage as a lot of the third way technologies I'm talking about are at the moment. You know, electricity from wind or solar costs thousands of times what it costs uh, for conventional energy. You know, solar's been decreasing at a rate of 10% per annum in terms of cost for 30 years. But it needed that government commitment early on, you know. And we were leading in Australia for a while. We had, you know, one of the best solar groups in the world and it was one government's decision. It was Howard government decision early on that said, coal's the future, we don't need to bother with this stuff, cut it. You know, you need consistent policy development in these areas and it's got to be over, not years, but decades to get you where you need to go. Yeah, I absolutely agree we need consistent energy policy, but at the same time, 
businesses that rely purely on the government of the day to set its agenda for the next 20 or 30 years are just, you know, lacking foresight. And, um, you know, I would have thought... We're, we're working for some companies out of Germany, for instance, where we're working on products that they will be introducing in five to seven years' time. And we're working now on how do we engage communities, regulators, academics, others, so that by the time we're ready for the launch of the new product, there's a social licence, there's a commitment from people to actually use it, and then there can be rapid uptake. So we're doing product development at the same time as we're doing stakeholder engagement. And to me, that's the kind of sophistication that you would love to see in Australia with new business. Um, why don't we? Because it's a sort of sequential process to some extent here. Let's get the technology, let's get the approval, and then let's go and get the community support. It hasn't worked particularly well for fracking, uh, and it hasn't worked well for wind farms, um, and it won't work well for solar. Um, all these things are actually got to be done in ways where you say, what are the community concerns, how can we predict them and how can we resolve them so we de-risk the technology before we actually introduce it, then we can do it faster. Yeah, that's right. I thought, to be fair, if I could just say, I think a lot of the things I'm talking about in the book are really at an even earlier stage in a developmental cycle. They're really at that R&D stage rather than a product development stage. Right. So, and, and there you do need some you know, long-term commitment from, for research funding and so forth to get them moving. Uh, Tim, I have a, a, another perspective, or a little bit of a different perspective. I'm a child of the 70s. You wouldn't know, would you? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, when I was growing up, we, we were, it wasn't the change from 1915 to 1950, right? Mm. The 1970s, 1980s, 90s, it was a J-curve. So I'm old enough to have understood the past. I actually know what life was like. But I'm, but, I'm, but I'm also accustomed to rapid change. And I expected by 2015, I'd be riding around on a hoverboard. Right? <laughs> and, and yet, you know, and, and when some of these things do come, home, come through, and I call the kids in and say, kids, watch this. And I talk, and the words appear on my computer screen. That's fantastic. <laughs> they go, huh? So what? <laughs> but what I do know, and, and so I am profoundly disappointed. You know, I, I, I've seen, you know, t towards 20, to, you know, 20, 20, 2000, sorry, towards 2000, we all thought life was going to be better, didn't we? We all thought that the social uh, uh, environment was going to be better. We all thought technology was going to be better. Things were improving, right? Yeah. Uh, and what's actually played out has been just hugely disturbing. But, but I would say, sorry, Catherine, just, just a, a point. I think that if we get the settings right, the market will respond. Smart businesses do get this. The insurance industry sure gets this, yeah, right, yeah. for example. Right? There are lots of people who understand all of the benefits of the new future, job creation, investment in rural and regional Australia, you know, lower electricity bills, but lower you know, bills in other areas. Uh, and so, for example, here's an idea for Malcolm Turnbull. Right? He's just done a deal with the Nationals that says, I won't put a price on carbon and I won't introduce an emissions trading scheme. Well, he's never said anything about emissions laws that cap the emissions from our That's fossil right. fuel generators. Yeah. And not just fossil fuel generators, from every sector, right? Yeah. So that we can actually make it impossible for the Hazelwoods of today mm -hmm. to operate in the future. Right? So there are ways we can do this, but it, does, it all comes back to political will, yeah. getting the the, the foundation right, and the market will respond. 
We've got yeah, I mean, I wanted to just... I mean, often we talk about things not being good, and I just want to put an opposite view for a moment, which is when we look at the summary of what's been achieved through the Millennium Development Goals, there has been a massive reduction in poverty. Like, uh, if you combine some of the ideas that are being pulled together to integrate sustainable development goals, um, you can actually be looking at efforts that will reduce carbon and reduce poverty and uh, improve um, the outcomes from biodiversity perspective. So people are actually thinking about these things in more of an integrated model. And some of the uh, very exciting kind of concepts that are generated out of this will, will seek to deliver a whole range of things at once. And just the Millennium Development Goals were focused on developing countries and has, I think, if I remember correctly, it's about a 40% reduction in um, poverty in that period. So um, I think when we make a decision as, an, as a globe, there is some incredible outcomes very quickly. Um, so I'm not um, pessimistic. I just think we just need to be a bit more sophisticated around how we engage with the community, treating people intelligently and trying to um, identify all of the problems and resolve them proactively. And that's what we don't have. We don't have a mindset in our organisations to say, let's proactively resolve the issues, identify them, resolve, anticipate, and you know, get those things sorted out. We're sort of relying on the political will. I think that's way too much of a lag indicator. Why would we wait for political will to generate a strategic position for us as a community or as a business? Tim, one of the things you write about, and the reason for the th a third way for this desperate search for another way is connected to this, uh, that, that so many of the solutions that have been proposed have, well, potentially terrifying mm. effects or unknown effects, but certainly not beneficial uh, and, and often mostly not actually dealing with the problem. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what Catherine's talking about integrating, I mean, that, that's, you say, what do you do with the seaweed? Well, we need to find a way to eat it or something. Is that? That's uh, right. Use yeah. it or get rid of it. Exactly. And we do, what we need is a recognition that this approach actually has a coherence and needs to be advanced. So just as an example of um, the difference between what we're doing now and what I think we need, look at current government policy in Australia. You know, governments can claim that they're reducing emissions using direct action policy. The fact of the matter is that emissions from the burning of fossil fuels are increasing in Australia because we got rid of the carbon tax and, and the, 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 the hazelwoods of the world are now running flat, flat out, you know. Um, but they say, oh, it's okay because we've got direct action. Direct action doesn't reduce emissions. What most of the direct action policy does is basically foster very early stage third way technologies. So they're mostly farm gate ones, they're you know, changing grazing patterns or uh, uh, you know, changing burning in indigenous lands or, or you know, something of that nature. And, and that's a valuable and good thing to be doing, but we have to recognise it's fundamentally different from reducing emissions. And we need to broaden our scope a bit, look beyond the farm gate with these technologies to see where we actually, where we can be most effective at scale. So we just need to reorient our thinking with this stuff, I think. And um, if I could just comment on, because there's been such an interesting discussion, but with John, I reckon you and I both watched too many episodes of The Jetsons. We were doing kind of these techno-optimists <laughs> as kids, you know. And um, I, I, there's, 
there's a reality there. I mean, when I talk to people in their 20s now, and I don't know how you find this, Catherine, but I find that they're not like they're not like us. They don't believe the world's going to keep on getting better. They are really concerned they're going to be worse off than we were. And I wonder when that changed. But, you know, maybe we're the last generation who'll think about think that way. You know, the ancient Romans believed in a golden age and the world was declining after that. And I think we're going back to that sort of view. I mean, that disturbs me because I... Um I hate a world where we've, you know, created a situation for our youth where they can't have hopes for something better. Uh, and I, I don't think we should sort of allow them to come into a world that says, oh, it's just, um, it's completely stuffed, there's no point. And I, I've heard that. I mean, I've, I went and lectured at a um, Masters of Business course on sustainability and we were talking, um, I just sort of thought, I'll get a bit of a straw poll how many people think it's worth making a significant effort in business to try and resolve these sustainable development issues? And a third of people said, well, there's no point. The world's stuffed. Um, I thought, oh, my God, these people are our business leaders of the future. This is where business can be a force for good. A third of the people in this course that has selected themselves as leaders think there is no point. And we can't accept that. I mean, we have to challenge that and say, absolutely, there's a point, And there's a point in demanding from yourself something better and from everyone around you something better. Yeah, well, Catherine, um, uh, the view of our federal government has been coal is good for humanity. Right? When you talk about the developing world... So, was? Did you say was? Yeah, that's right. No, no, no. no it is. Because there has been no change, right? We're yeah. optimistic there may be some movement. We have an atmosphere of hope. We, we have an atmosphere <laughs> of hope. Right. But I can tell you when it comes to politics, hope is not enough. <laughs> We've got to yeah, take right. action. Yeah, yeah, but right. but um, uh, back to this. You know, the developing world is embracing solar technology in particular. A small solar panel running LED lighting, charging a mobile phone running a computer, right, giving people access to the world. Um, so these countries are not putting in the grid infrastructure we have. They're leapfrogging. Just like countries did, they didn't put in wires for telephones. They went straight to mobile technology, right? The same thing's happening with... So th there are really exciting things and hopeful things and positive things that are happening, but we need a vision from our leaders that is bigger than... Australia's got a lot of coal. We'd better dig it up and sell it real quick while we can still sell it into a world market and let's stop anything that tries to interfere. But while, while you're saying that, at the same time as the Australian politicians that were, you know, the, the ruling politicians had that view, the price of coal fell dramatically. And if you look at the same time as that is happening, there's been a divestment strategy that's grown faster than any divestment strategy in the history of the world so far. And at the same time, we've had dropping prices. So if you want to look to what are the forecasts for coal, you should be looking at what were the people prepared to pay for the Newcastle port, as an example. And we're talking about evidence that there is an increasing perception in finance circles that there's some stranded asset risks. So a carbon bubble. What those, yeah, uh, I mean, and that, that is the political reality. So it's a bit... You know, there's a bit of a disjunct there between what the politicians are saying because there is a, a fear of the transition process and then what is actually occurring in the market. Uh, that gap needs to be observed. You're, you're, be you're, you're absolutely right. Sorry, um, Tim, just for one really quick comment. Um, solar won, like renewable energy has won, right? It's just yeah. pure economics. 
Uh, that, you know, people can frustrate this, they can slow it down, but it is unstoppable. That's the really good news. So I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the fossil fuel industries, that issue of carbon risk that you identified is such a major one. You know, the, the, the valued reserves of fossil fuels, say, you know, the ExxonMobil's of the world and all the other fossil fuel companies have, is enough to um, create, was it all used, about 3,000 gigatons of CO2. Now, the allowable carbon budget before we go through the two degree mark is about 600 just a little bit more than 600 gigatons. So, you know, that's a, there's, there's five-sixths of the, of the valued reserves, the value on stock markets can't be used. And I think once the implications of that sink through, there is going to be a profound impact on markets. There really, there really will, once that's properly understood. Um, but, and you're right, John, that renewables have won. The trouble is old coal-fired power plants are cheap to run. There's, you know, the Oxford study identified 300 of them around the world, each a 1,000 megawatts, massive plants, right? We've got a number of them in Australia, which are old, highly polluting, and should be shut down. But they're cheap to run. They'll be, they'll be there until they break down, unless government regulates. And the thing you talked about, the Clean Air Act the kind of approach in Australia, it, it's so central. But we've had that federal clean air bill now in discussion for years. Yeah. No one's acted on it. It's what's really needed. It's the only way we'll get action. And if we can't close down our old clunking coal-fired power plants, what chances is it that it'll happen in India or in South Africa, where they've got such a shortage of electricity? And that's where I agree there's political will question. I mean, in, a, in Victoria, my understanding is there really is a, an appetite to do something in relation to climate change in this state. So given that that's the, the drive here, it'll be really interesting to see can they shut down these um, high-polluting uh, coal-fired power stations and do it in a way that, uh, you know, is a transition, it's a, a low-cost transition? The state, the state here has just announced their target and it's lower than the federal target. Mm -hmm. anyway. If you would like to ask a question, uh, put your hand up and if somebody puts a microphone in it, start talking. <laughs> Gentleman there in the middle... Um, we've, had much, we've had a lot of discussion about uh, fossil fuels, but no discussion at all of animal agriculture. Um, my understanding is that animal agriculture, in fact, is responsible for more than half of the carbon dioxide equivalent emissions, that's including methane. Tim, just do you think you can be an environmentalist and eat meat? I do think you can. I think it depends on the amount of meat you eat and, and where the meat comes from. And the reason I take that view is that you know before humans ever came about, there was vast numbers of megafauna on the planet which were all eating lots of vegetation and producing lots of methane and were part of the natural cycle. So in the US there were 60 million bison on the plains before the massacres of the 19th centuries. And, you know, 40,000 years ago there was diprotodons here and mammoths all across, you know, the, the, the north. So at some level, large mammals um, are part of the system. What's happened with our meat production is that we have just ramped it up way too high so that you've got a lot of um, production which is very intensive and intensive in terms of emissions as well. So probably it's more a matter of scale. How much do you want to cut back on your meat and do you want to eat more chicken or lamb than beef? Those sort of things. All, all count. It's interesting, by the way, just the way times change. I, my father-in-law showed me, showed me an old cookbook, the Emily McPherson cookbook from 1952. No mention of chicken. 
in that cookbook. It was how to boil a sheep's head. They were crack. They had every detail on. You got to scrape the teeth and all this sort of great stuff. But um, but no mention of chicken. And and just times do change. And chicken's much less intensive in terms of carbon emissions than than beef. I think also the other uh, example of innovation is what's happening with the food and additives that are being being given to cattle, whether it's dairy or red meat. Um, and uh, they're doing things to try and change the feed that they get to reduce the amount of methane they produce. Um, so there are different sorts of innovations that might actually change the dynamics there too. I just want to go back to um, a point made before. How do we address this disconnect between the pollies and their view and your and my view. It, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. I can't understand why supposedly intelligent people can't quite make that leap. What, what do we have to do to get them to do it? Yeah, look, this is, this is fundamentally our political problem. Our political leaders are followers, not leaders. Uh, and um, as we've gone around the country in these Save Solar forums, we're mobilising on a Thursday night at tea time in the local RSL club, four, five, six hundred people at a time. These are regular folk from the electorate, right, who actually believe in this stuff. And we're reinvigorating that sense of democracy, kind of giving people that old town hall style experience again, hearing directly from politicians, but giving them some practical tools to take away. So at the forum we held in Canning on Sunday morning, uh, every attendee took a handful of banners, which, uh, and there's a prize for who can make the banner the most visible for the, for the last week of the election campaign, for example. So we can do this. Uh, it doesn't have to be party political. We'll support any party that supports good solar policy, but they all need to adopt this policy. We have to make it just a standard, locked-in, bipartisan approach mm. for all political parties as the foundation to build on. Just say, I, I think that's incredibly admirable, but I must say I have totally lost faith in our representative system of democracy to deliver the outcomes we need, and I think we need a change in terms of the system. At the moment, representation means you elect someone from one of two or three or four parties, um, let them do their thing for three or six years and then come back and visit and see what they've done. And Bromham Bishop is probably a good example of why you shouldn't do that. You know, the people, when she was flying over Hoppers Crossing, looking down at all those little taxpayers footing the bill for her helicopter trip, she probably should have thought, actually, who am I representing, you know? So what would it look like, Tim, if you were in charge? I would be trying to devolve as much representation to the people as I could. In, in, um, probably one of the best methods for doing that is a jury-based system where you take, say, 40 people chosen at random from society, uh, expose them to all of the expert opinion and all the opinion on, and on a question, whether it's how tall should this building be or how big should the budget be for whatever, you know, um, and, and get them to make a decision. Pay them for their time. And over time, all of us would then become representative for a little period of time on a little issue, but we'd all get a sense of what it meant to do that sort of work. There'd be much more respect about it, and the decisions you'd make would be acceptable to the community. At the moment, we don't have that sort of system, unfortunately. I've been involved in running and developing these citizen juries or participative Mm. processes, and I think um, sometimes they can work if you increase people's level of knowledge and understanding of the in-depth 
details of the issue. It's very time-consuming for people, though. Sure. Mm. Um, and I contrast it to... a this is something I wasn't involved in, but when um, royalties for regions happened in Western Australia, there was a devolving of decision-making around how to spend that money. And some of the worst-case examples I heard is communities getting together and deciding, like, this is probably the worst one. I'm giving you the worst-case example. But they decided they'd spend their money on singing toilets. Yeah, well. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I yeah. mean, who are they accountable to? When it comes to a bad decision, yeah. a participative process without a lot of intelligence inside it because of the lack of time or the lack of resources or the lack of effort or the lack of, you know, detailed planning around how it can occur, could give us some really bad right. outcomes. And the question as well is really important. What is the question you're asking people to address? How is it going to be framed? How is it going to be prioritised? And I, could, I, I think you've got to pay people for their time with this and everyone has to get used to the idea that if I've got to spend a couple of days being paid, I, you know, that's what you go and do. Mm. Um, it, and I, I agree with you, you'll get some bad decisions because 40 people chosen at random could be quite a <laughs> weird, could biased group. But how much worse can it be than a current situation? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to the panel, but we've spoken a lot about the needs and the way of saving <clears throat> our environment. One of the things that's lacking uh, that could tap into that is what, is what is the industry of the future? What are people going to be doing in Australia, seeing as we've sort of eliminated most um, sources of manufacturing? Um, resources is cyclical. Uh, yes, we could become the food basket of Asia, but other than that, it seems like a highly educated country could come up with a lot of innovation in this area, and I would think that government policy, which is about jobs, we're about jobs, perhaps that's another way of um, linking in the benefits of innovating in this field. Um, there, there's, uh, there's five growth centres that have been identified as industry policy uh, to develop, and um, I don't know if it will be the same under Malcolm Turnbull, but one of them is advanced manufacturing, um, oil and gas, mining services, um, food and agri, uh, and for the life of me, I can't remember the fifth one right this second. It's not but... coal, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the advanced manufacturing, and I think one of the other things, I saw um, Ben Rimmer, from, um, who's the CEO of the City of Melbourne, but Melbourne right now has the third largest biological, biotech um, asset in the world. So there are some pretty amazing things that we're actually advancing in, but we don't necessarily hear about them and we don't have a stated sort of vision that everyone can kind of hold on to and say that's where we're heading. And I think that's a problem because I would love to see us being the nation of innovators that know how to create and resolve these issues. It would be brilliant. Sure. And I think manufacturing is so critical. I mean, you go to Europe and you see little little cities in, or towns in Norway, you know, that manufacture things like propellers for big ships. Or you can go anywhere, you see this. I don't know why we've let that slip in Australia. And we'll slip out of the conversation there. Thank you, Tim. Coming up in the next episode of The Fifth Estate, a potentially very interesting combination given this week's ascension of Malcolm Turnbull to the Australian Prime Ministership. Sally? Tonight. This is going to be a ripper, I reckon. I've got uh, Chris Bowen and Christopher Pine.
you can make a booking or subscribe to the podcast at wheelercenter.com. See you then. <laughs>